Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. This is Philip Lance, your host for today's podcast. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Lynn Kuttnauer and Dr. Richard Tush about their book, Conundrums and Predicaments in Psychotherapy and Psychoanalysis, published in 2018 by Rutledge. Dr. Tush is a training and supervising analyst at the New Center for Psychoanalysis and the Psychoanalytic Center of California, two institutes here in Los Angeles. He has received several prestigious awards for his writing and teaching. Um, Dr. Kuttnauer is also a training and supervising analyst at the New Center for Psychoanalysis in Los Angeles, and she is the founder of the Clinical Moments Program here in Los Angeles. I think this book will be particularly interesting to people who are interested in comparative psychoanalysis, either learning it or teaching it. I also think it will be appreciated by clinicians who want a book that you can keep by your bedside and maybe read a chapter a week as a kind of a tune-up or an inspiration for the daily work of seeing patients. So welcome to the program, Drs. Kuttnauer and Tush. Thank you. It's good to be here. And so let's jump right into um, telling us about what you're trying to accomplish with this book. So before you get into the Clinical Moments program, maybe just tell what what's the sort of objective that you want want to happen with this book. Well, the um, <clears throat> this book grew out of the Clinical Moments program, which Lynn will be talking a little more about. But uh, what we wanted to do is present a, a easy, accessible uh, experience where we pick uh, a dozen clinical vignettes uh, in, in which the therapist felt a little thrown. This is a conundrum. I, I don't, know, don't know quite how to proceed. And then throw it out to experts as to what they think about the situation and what they might do had they been in the therapist's shoes. So what we're trying to do is present um, to challenge the reader and to challenge the commentators with uh, unusual clinical moments uh, where it's not business as usual, where you have to kind of think on your feet. You, you, you may not be able to fall back on traditional rules you learned in training, and, and uh, you have to come up with something a little different because you, you don't know quite how to handle the situation. It, it seems fraught with difficulty, uh, maybe potentially uh, therapy-threatening. You know, so we we wanted to get people to think about these situations to and and to see if these clinical moments might help them get at their core beliefs about how therapy works and how therapy can help people change. So that's the idea. Uh huh. And I guess a little follow up then to that. So it's it's not it's not just to 
help people figure out what to do in difficult situations in a, in a therapy. As I said in my introduction, it's, it's a good, I think it's a good book to sort of little learn about comparative psychoanalysis, which, um, what do you guys think about that idea that this book helps with people interested in that comparing different schools? Yeah. Lynn, do you want to? Sure. Yeah. I, um, I agree. One of the things that, um, has been important in clinical moments in terms of the program that we run, um, as well as the book, is that it's a way of getting clinicians to think about thinking psychoanalytically, um, the really engaging the idea of multiple perspectives and how do we think analytically? How do we listen? Um, what guides us? And um, both the Clinical Moments uh, program as well as the, the project, the book, I think are really useful in that way. What, why don't you tell us more about what is the Clinical Moments program, Lynn? Sure. Well, the Clinical Moments program actually began... Um, in about 2004, 2005, at the Michigan Psychoanalytic Institute, um, which is where I had trained, uh, Dr. Marvin Margolis was very, very interested in changing the public, um, public professional um, view about psychoanalysis. He really wanted to make it um, be less elitist, less exclusionary, and wanted to open it up to people who weren't um, currently involved in the analytic institute. He wanted to modify the look of analysis. And what he decided is that um, one of the best ways is to really make it informal and welcoming. And so uh, the Clinical Moments program started as a monthly meeting in various analyst homes, and uh, he thought that would help make it warm and welcoming, and it involved dinner. He thought the best way to make people feel welcome and comfortable was to feed them. And so the program began its um, one uh evening a month, the same evening, and uh, he would invite uh, graduate students in psychology, psychiatric residents, people newly graduated in the field, as well as people in the field who had been um, practicing for a while, and to come for an evening and to eat, develop a sense of community, and um, listen to clinical material. And um, as Rich was talking about earlier, um, each month a different analyst would present um, process material from an ongoing case typically in which there was a moment in the session where the therapist felt um, taken off guard at indeed a choice point of how do I proceed? And um, 
The other thing that came of it is that a lot of times people beginning their career had the sense that even experienced senior analysts struggled in a particular moment at a particular time in a case. And I think it really helped um, people new in the field and students realize that they weren't the only ones who were in question at a time. Do you know, are there many other institutes around the country that, so it's Michigan and Los Angeles, the do you think there's others? You know, I am not sure. Um, Rich, do you have information on that? Yeah, I I was under the impression, uh, I don't know how I heard of this, but I thought there was something uh, at Yale that they did that was similar. That's the only other place where, uh, where that might be going on. And I think this book may inspire other institutes as it sort of to, to do something similar because it seems like a really effective way of beginning to draw in clinicians who may be interested in psychoanalysis or psychoanalytic psychotherapy or possibly interested in entering into training but aren't ready for that yet. Um, but why don't you maybe, Richard, tell us about um, how the book is more organized, sort of chapter by chapter, and maybe as a part of that too. I, there's a section about the flawed experimental design, and um, which I thought was interesting. So, how does how does it work? Okay, well, um, Lynn was instrumental in helping pick the twelve moments. Uh, seven of them come from analysts in Los Angeles, five from analysts in Michigan. Uh, so she was cherry picking the very best uh, clinical moments, at least from a, a teaching standpoint. And then once we had those 12 moments, I somewhat arbitrarily organized them into categories uh, which may or may not be a little forced, you know, uh, two of them seem directly to have to do with counter-transference enactments. Uh, three of them uh, have to do with a discrepancy between what patients want and what therapists believe they're capable of providing. Uh, four of them have to do with uh, the issue of having impact, both the impact of the therapist on the patient and the patient on the therapist and how power is balanced. So that's kind of how we organized it. We had 12 moments and then we decided to break them up into uh, uh, four uh, lots uh, and organize them in that way. The, the, the flawed experimental design is an interesting concept. You know, um, Initially, when we sent out instructions to commentators, uh, I had uh, emphasized more the issue of how might you have responded had you been in the therapist's shoes. And, and Lynn was very wise in, in re-emphasizing what does this situation that's being presented make you think that, that we, we reversed the order and made it more important to look at how commentators think about the situation rather than how they think they might respond. It's, it's how do you think you might respond that's the flawed experimental design. Uh, back in the 80s, I was in supervision with Sid Fine, and he and his wife did this 
experiment where they took some clinical material and they presented it to different groups of analysts uh, organized around what their theoretical orientation is, Kleinians, ego psychologists, and I think at that time it was self-psychologists. They said, here is, here is clinical material. Tell us how you would respond. At what point in the material would you break in? What would you say? And, and they came up with some conclusions. And I said to Sid, you know, there's something flawed about this because, you know, you're, even though it looks like you're giving them a lot to work with, the, these, are, these commentators really aren't there. They don't have a history. They don't, they're not in the room. They don't have a visceral sense. They really don't have a counter-transference to work from. And so it's a little bit flawed because uh, y- you think you're doing an assay of how these commentators would actually work in the moment with this presented patient. That's probably not true because what they're probably doing is falling back on default ways of thinking and interacting when if they actually had been in the therapist's shoes all along, then they would probably be responding differently. So, uh, so in the, the commentator's lack of firsthand visceral sense of what it's like to be in the room with the patient and a history with the patient, it's very hard to reasonably expect them to be able to comment on what would you do. So much better to get them to comment on what do you think about the situation. Uh, and in, in uh, Lynn's emphasizing that part, I think that was very much correct because that, if there's something we feel we can scientifically get to, it's more, what do you, what does this make you think? Not how do you think you'd act? So, so that's what the fail flawed design is. It's about thinking that the commentators have authority to be able to reasonably say, well, you know, I wouldn't have done it that way. You know, that's not the right way to do it. I would have done it this way that's where you get into trouble in supervision and in commenting on clinical moments. Yeah. I noticed so many of the commentators in their responses were so careful to say, I, I'm not, I wasn't there. Um, but here's how I might conceptualize what might be going on. Um, and, uh, so there were lots of different commentators and maybe Lynn, maybe you could, like, who were these commentators? Maybe, I don't know, mention some names or to the schools they're from. Yes, you know, um, uh, Richard was really helpful in um, making sure that we had commentators um, really from all different schools of thought, that one of the things that I think is so important in this is that we have uh, so many different um, ways of thinking represented um, so that in terms of the, the I mean, list of, of commentators, um, uh, there's uh, Salman Akhtar and Ann Alvarez, Rosemary Balsam. I mean, it goes through. Um, we have uh, people that are really um, think about things in an intrapsychic way that um, really defining the conflict and interpreting the conflict. We have 
um, uh, commentators that are much more from an interpersonal school. Uh, Rich knows a lot of the commentators personally, and that was really helpful in um, that part of the book because um, he has had relationships with them. Let me go over some of them in, in categories. For instance, you, you know, I, I felt it was very important to make the book eclectic, to make it rich. So in terms of Kleinians, there's Anne Alvarez and uh, Rachel Bloss, uh, um, Albert Mason, and uh, Irma Brenman Pick. Uh, and, uh, there are a bunch of ego psychologists, Alan Sugarman and Bob Michaels and Judy Kantrowitz and Fred Bush, those kinds of people. Uh, Mitchell Wilson is kind of a Lacanian and then a bunch of relational people, you know, uh, Donald Stern, um, Joe Lichtenberg, Edgar Levinson, who I was particularly pleased at, at getting to participate, Jay Greenberg, uh, Darlene Bregman, uh, Darlene uh, Ehrenberg, uh, James Fosagi. So we really got quite a, uh, a a roster of outstanding analysts speaking from different theoretical perspectives, and and that was very important. A number of these people I knew, so I could kind of impress upon them. You know, would you participate? Um, and, and then I had some of them introduce me to other people that I did not know. I don't, never knew Edgar Levinson, but he was gracious enough to, to sign on. I don't know Dominique Scarfone. I think you, don't you know him, Lynn? Yes, I had, um, consulted with him, um, for a period of time after I moved from Michigan to LA. And so I, I knew his work and knew him. And so it was great to be able to have him participate. I think, I think of all the people we approached, maybe only one or two said no. And, and strictly because it's like, look, I'm overwhelmed. I, you know, uh, I can't possibly do anything more, but, but people generally were excited about the project uh, and were very willing to participate, rolled up their sleeves, worked hard, and, and we're very appreciative of that. And uh, I think this, in, in that way, is a very unique book. Uh, the, the format's unique, and I think it's unique to have so many different analytic voices all between two covers. And were there any surprises and with working with some, I don't know, 14 or 15 different commentators from any... 20, 25. 25. Oh, wow. Were, 20, 25 were, were any of them more, I don't know, harsh or like, this is the way it has to be, or, you know, there's only one way to see this or any surprises there? Lynn, do you want to comment about that? Yes. Um, uh, yeah, there were certainly a, a couple people who is, as you read the book, you see they, um, they begin right away with this idea of, this is this is what I would do. This is the way to go. But um, I was surprised by how many of our commentators were very appreciative that they weren't in the room, as uh, Rich was talking about earlier in terms of the flawed design. They were all incredibly easy to work with, given um, how 
busy they are, um, each one of them was incredibly uh, kind and responded quickly. Um, both, both Rich and I ended up working with all of them in, in different capacities. Um, there was at one point um, a number of the commentators needed to uh, shorten their comments because we had it, we had very strict limits, and I was um, I was a little anxious asking them to you know please reduce your comments by um, you know twelve hundred words or something, um, but they they were all very cooperative and really seemed to enjoy the task. They were excited about the book. I. I, I want to ask you each um, in a minute what what was your favorite chapter, and I know you each uh, have your your kind of own chapter where you presented one of your clinical moments. So, and you're, it's you have license to make that <laughs> your favorite chapter. But one of mine was actually Lynn was your your chapter because I think the commentators were Rachel. I don't know if it's pronounced Blass or Blass, and then was it Rosemary Balsam, and and they were. So very different, coming from very different perspectives, and of course, Rachel. Whenever I read her, she's she argues very strongly for very defined kind of limits about what is psychoanalysis and what it's not. And I always appreciate how sort of firmly she <laughs> argues about the truth of psychoanalysis because it really sort of is challenging to um, to one's own thinking. Um, so that was one of my favorite sort of chapters in the book. And I, uh, but there were s- several where I just learned so much, but why don't each of you sort of say, tell us about one of your chapters and anything surprising that happened or why you liked it. For, for a host of reasons, I like uh, Michelle Gomes check chapter considering third party. She tells the story of this patient who brings a kitten uh, into uh, the consulting room and drops it into Michelle's hands and puts her in a terrible bind uh, because he's someone who tortured animals when he was younger. Whether whether Michelle, as his therapist, ought to give the kitten back and trust the kitten to her to her to him, or hold the hold the kitten and take care of it herself. It was a very unusual situation. You know, where does her allegiances lie? It, it raised all kinds of questions about third parties. You know, like if uh, you have a patient who's abusing a child, uh, you know, do you feel aligned with the child? Or, you know, when husband and wife are in conflict and you're treating the wife and you're not quite sure she's being fair to the husband and you suddenly feel drawn into an allegiance with someone outside the room. Very interesting question. And I particularly like the commentary by Edgar Levinson. I think, you know, he pinpoints something he uh, about what therapists can and can't expect themselves to be and to do. And, and I particularly like how he, you know, uh, says, look, you know, if, if you think you're going to be a better parent than the patient's parent, think again. You know, it's very interesting where he goes, especially for a relationist uh, 
I really liked what he says in this chapter. I think it's a, a good, a good teaching section. So <clears throat> that's why I like Michelle's. But there are so many interesting conundrums in one chapter written by uh, Jim Perkins. Basically, he's interpreting down a particular path, and the patient says to him, "If you keep this up, if you keep, you know, hammering at this, I'm going to walk out." And and that and Jim does actually continue along the path, but you know, it was a little harrowing that he would elect to do that. So I think that's an interesting conundrum. There are a couple of chapters about cantor transference enactments. One presented by Jill Modell Barth and the other by Susan Orbach that really look at the question of, of how the therapist gets stirred up and what you do with that. Uh, I like that. And, and one by Janet Smith, where the patient is really wanting concrete answers and Janet's trying very hard to you know, not give concrete answers and to get the patient to look at her need for concrete answers. So all of those are interesting. And I have the last chapter is one in which uh, uh, I had a patient who had kind of worried me sick when he momentarily disappeared. Uh, I couldn't find him. He wasn't showing up to sessions. And he had earlier on said, you know, there could come a time when I'm just not going to show up and I'm not going to answer your call. And it, and, it, and it really got me quite upset. And amazingly, this seemed to have been a trigger, one of the triggers that landed me in the hospital with appendicitis. So the idea that a therapist's worry about a patient could actually get the therapist that sick is a very interesting kind of dilemma. So that's those are my thoughts about the various chapters. Lynn, do you have a particularly favorite one? That- you know, it, it's funny because um, like you, it's very hard to choose. There were um, three that stand out in my mind. Um, but each of them in one way or another, as you were saying, Rich, um, with Michelle Gomes, that there are these just gems of teaching thoughts that are just right there. Um, I I loved Michelle's chapter uh, with the kitten um, in part because in reading it um, as a reader, I felt there in the room um, that the description of the clinical moment was so viscerally there. And the commentators had such different ideas about how to proceed. Um, In a similar way, I really liked um, Bernadette Kovacs's of the little boy, Adam, where um, he's a very traumatized little boy who really wasn't speaking. And uh, required her to be silent, and um, as they worked out his his psychic trauma from medical procedures that he had to undergo um, from very very early on in his life, that she too had a way of um, drawing you in to that therapy to that moment. Um, where even though you weren't 
there, even though I wasn't there, I really felt as though I was there. And um, she was asked to put a paper bag over her head where her vision um, was compromised and to be wrapped up tightly in a blanket, really recreating his experience of having to wear a helmet, of having surgical procedures where he was bound so that they um, could do what they needed to do, and having to think in that moment of, do I put this bag on my head? Do I really um, potentially endanger myself and him and the treatment, or am I trusting? And so it was in some ways very similar to that core conflict in the room, and both commentators had very different ideas about what the moment was about and how their theory led them to say, uh, Sugarman uh, said no, that 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 he would look at it completely as a conflict um, perspective, and you know that in some ways that wouldn't be the the choice that I would be in, and I would be interpreting. And um, Susan Donner, who really I think uh, listens and plays and works in a similar way um, to Bernadette and uh, said that, you know, yes, that she's hearing the, the issue in the same way. So I liked both of those moments because they were so clear, they were so immediate, and you had uh, to respond, and the commentators had very different ideas. Yeah, some of these um, episodes were real I'm calling them episodes, I guess, because I'm thinking they could be like TV episodes. Um, in fact, somebody should create a Netflix series out of this book <laughs> and you could like televise all these, like, cause some of them are, are just so um, like the one you just mentioned with the, the little boy that asked the analyst to put a bag over her head. And um, given who that little boy was, it, it was <laughs> not sure you'd want to do that. Or the, um, the, the one with the kitten with Michelle Gomes, um, was another real cliffhanger and kind of surprising too, as, as I read through that one and, and, and read what, how the commentators were thinking about what they would do or what was going on. It, it seemed like, yeah, there, this is right. I completely agree with this. But then at the end, Michelle described what she did in fact do. So you don't get that until the end. Well, so what happened? And it was, a I was surprised. Um, uh, oh my gosh, uh, I won't, you know, spoiler alert, but, um, so I won't say, but, uh, oh, this is a, it's a good, uh, you, you bring to mind something that's important to emphasize, Philip, in terms of the way the chapters are organized. Uh, each chapter begins with a little, a little abstract kind of telling you what's going to happen in the chapter. And then there's a brief essay that, that it's a bit of a literature review and a, a reflection on the larger issues that, uh, that contextualize the moment. Then the moment gets presented, and the way in which the clinical moments project and program work is the presenter presents to a point and then stops. And then the group, if it's happening in a home or the commentator on the page, 
enters in and says, well, this is what I think and this is what I do. And only at the end then does the presenter say, okay, now this is how I handled it and this is how it unfolded. So that's the, the, uh, the schema of, of each chapter and of the program. So as, as Lynn's mentioning, you know, you eventually do hear what ultimately happens. But, but uh, the way the design was is, is that the commentators did not know what the presenter finally ended up doing and how it worked out. So they were blind to that. Now, that's a little bit of the experimental design that makes it a little scientific. It's like, okay, you guys, and I worked very hard to make sure none of the commentators knew, you know, the ultimate outcome of the moment. And so they're, they're kind of blind to that. So that's a good thing scientifically. I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, we're so involved in clinical moments that, um, I forget that that was an important part that um, that isn't mentioned. I've I've heard from uh, one or two commentators since the book has come out, and um, you know, so they didn't know up until they received the book one what the other commentator wrote or what the analyst chose uh, to do in the situation. And um, so I spoke with Rosemary Balsam, and uh, she she commented that it was so interesting for her to one hear what actually happened, and also to be able to read uh, what the other commentators had said. And um, so I think in some ways it's it's interesting for the commentators who now have the book and who are reading it to be able to see what their, their fellow commenters um, have said uh, and to hear what actually happened. Yeah, it makes me think that I, I think this book is really helpful in promoting kind of a generous spirit of people from different perspectives talking to each other um, very um, respectfully and uh, – and also, really honestly, I think, um, and genuinely sharing sort of vulnerable moments that happen sometimes. R- Richard, what you talked about, the, the, the patient who actually made you literally sick and you ended up in the hospital. I think um, probably lots of us have had experiences where something happens, especially when it comes around a patient who disappears for suddenly, unexpectedly a period of time and, and you begin wondering, oh my gosh, did they finally do it? Or I've had that happen and it can uh, ruin an, an entire weekend. Or another analyst, I forget which one, she really talked about how a patient came at her really strongly and she was sort of almost um, knocked off her perch and, and said, I, I've always had trouble in, in responding in moments of um, extreme uh, sort of aggression from others and, and holding my own and uh, something like that. And I, I felt very sympathetic to her in that. And, and I thought it was really courageous to sort of share some of those moments when, when we're really vulnerable and not always on top of our game. 
Yeah, that was Randall Friedman's chapter. I, I like that too. The the admission, the humble ad, admission of, of a kind of a vulnerability. We all are vulnerable for our own personal reasons to certain kinds of clinical moments. And she was uh, very forthcoming that this was one issue she was sensitive to, but handled it uh, heroically, I think, quite quite well, even though you know, she had this, this vulnerability. So we're, we're kind of winding down here, but are there, I think you said somewhere in the introduction that there might be another book like this coming along, or what are your thoughts about um, other projects similar to this or, or not? Well, I, you know, when we were doing this, I was so jazzed by the whole idea, although it was a tremendous amount of work and, uh, and uh, I should mention that a number of the people contributing the clinical moments had not written before, and everybody who who commented had written. And so we were working with a group of, of uh, uh, psychoanalysts, uh, some of whom, you know, I unfortunately had to give a lot of notes to in terms of getting them to modify their clinical moments to get them up to speed. But they, they finally did. And I feel so good about the fact that we've brought along a whole group of people who've never written, who now have written. And I feel good about that. But as we were doing it, I thought, geez, you know, there's probably all kinds of clinical moments out there in the world. And so Lynn and I put into uh, the book, look, this could be the first of many such volumes. In fact, I wanted to call it volume one, but the publisher wasn't keen on that. Whether this is grandiose and, and you know, uh, very expectant or whether we actually might get people from every which way to send us clinical moments that are as rich as these and might go at it again with another 12. That would be my hope. We now have a format. We have a a whole roster of commentators. It would be great because I think that the, the format is very, very accessible and educational. So that would be my hope, whether that ever comes to pass. We'll see. So Lynn, did you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I I think it would be uh, fascinating. Um, It's very labor intensive. Um, I actually am, uh, this this is the first time I've been published. Um, And, uh, but the process of kind of getting so many people to respond in a short period of time um, took a lot of, uh, a lot of time, but I know a number of people who are already beginning to use the book in classes that they teach. Yeah, I was thinking I could teach a class with this book. It'd be a really easy way to put together a curriculum and um, really an interesting way to learn. Well, so thank you both for this very, really terrific book. You're welcome. It was our pleasure. So you've been listening to an interview with Drs. Lynn Kuttnauer and Richard Tush about their book, Conundrums and Predicaments in Psychotherapy and Psychoanalysis, here at the New Books in Psychoanalysis podcast. Check out our website and feel free to email me with your comments and questions. Thanks for listening.